Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Park. Uh, but before we get started uh, with the news, I thought I'd give a quick shout out to our veterans out there. Uh, happy Veterans Day to all of you and your families. And thank you for your service and all that you've done. Of course, uh, it used to be called Armistice Day. Uh, it was celebrating the end of World War One on the 11th hour of 11th day of the 11th month. And uh, in the Commonwealth, of course, it's Remembrance Day. So anyway, for all the veterans out there, uh, thank you for your service. So as I said, we've got a, a news show for you this week, and I've got several things to cover. Uh, first of all, Facebook sues the NSO group about a WhatsApp hack. We've uh, talked about the NSO group a little while back when we were talking about stalkerware. Uh, Google buys Fitbit for $2.1 billion, and we'll talk about what that might mean for your privacy. Uh, Apple has a really neat uh, new privacy page that you should check out. I'll tell you what about that. Uh, Microsoft Office 365 is getting some much-needed sandboxing protection, though it sounds like it's going to start with enterprise stuff first, but we'll still talk about it. It's good to know about. Some researchers have found a clever way to hack your digital assistants, like uh, Siri and uh, Echo and Google Home, using lasers. So we'll talk about that. And then finally, we'll talk about my experiments with trying to resist browser fingerprinting and why it was why it was really difficult. So uh, I'll talk to you about a couple interesting articles there and uh, what you can do to mitigate at least some browser fingerprinting techniques. And of course, we'll talk about what all of that means. So without further ado, let's get into the news. First up, Facebook has sued the NSO Group, which is a company that produces software designed to track people, but it's like heavy-duty kind of stuff. It's, 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 this is you know really high-tech stuff used against high-value targets. But what they're basically saying is that the NSO Group was behind or enabled at least the recent WhatsApp hack. So anyway, let me let me just read briefly from this article from ThreatPost. Facebook has filed a lawsuit against Israeli company NSO Group, creator of the Pegasus spyware, alleging that it was behind the massive WhatsApp hack earlier this year. In May 2019, a zero-day vulnerability was found in WhatsApp's messaging platform, exploited by attackers who were able to inject spyware onto victims' phones and targeted campaigns. A new lawsuit by WhatsApp owner uh, Facebook alleges that NSO Group developed the surveillance code and used vulnerable WhatsApp servers to send malware to approximately 1,400 mobile devices. Quote, as we gather the information that we lay out in our complaint, we learned that the attackers used servers and internet hosting services that were previously, previously associated with NSO, said William Cathart, Cathcart, Cathcart, said William Cathcart, head of WhatsApp, in a Tuesday post. Again, quoting, in addition, as uh, our complaint notes, we have tied certain WhatsApp accounts used during the attacks back to NSO. While their attack was highly sophisticated, their attempts to cover their tracks were not entirely successful, unquote. The court documents say that the attack targeted at least 100 human rights defenders, journalists, and other members of civil society worldwide. Cathcart says that NSO Group's alleged moves violate various U.S. state and federal laws, including the U.S. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The lawsuit seeks to bar NSO Group from using Facebook and WhatsApp services, among seeking other unspecified damages. And quoting from Cathcart again, he says, This should serve as a wake-up call for technology companies, governments, and all Internet users. Tools that enable surveillance into our private lives are being abused, and the proliferation of this technology into the hands of irresponsible companies and governments puts us all at risk, unquote. Of course, it's really rich for Facebook to be suing somebody over privacy violations. Uh, but of course, in this case, it sounds like it was pretty high value targets doing some stuff that probably required uh, a good bit of privacy. And so anyway, it, you know, 
it, it's good this came to light. It's good that this is going to, uh, you know, shine some light on some things that are going on. Uh, but I still think it's just kind of funny that, <laughs> of all people, Facebook is suing somebody over our privacy. So anyway, speaking of privacy again, the next <laughs> the next thing on the list. So Google just bought Fitbit for about $2.1 billion. And Fitbit, if you're not aware, is the, um, the company that creates these little wearable devices uh, that allows you to track your exercise, basically, or your steps. So the little pedometers, little digital pedometers mostly, or watches or things that allow you to you know, track your runs, your walks, or just how many steps you get in a day, that kind of thing. Uh, it, they also have been used to, you know, for sleeping patterns, you know, to you wear them at night to see how, you know, they kind of do some judging, I guess, based on how much you move around, uh, you know, whether or not you're getting a good night's sleep. It, it, you know, Fitbit has now been used to do all sorts of things. So, you know, now that Google uh, is buying them, that's raising a lot of concerns among privacy, uh, privacy-minded people, myself included. So anyway, let, let me read a little bit from this article from The Guardian. Google's recent acquisition of Fitbit for $2.1 billion has left many users worried the tech giant may soon have access to their most intimate health information, from the number of steps they take each day to their breathing patterns, sleep quality, or menstrual cycles. Fitbit, founded in San Francisco in 2007, tracks the health data of 28 million users. In a blog post following the acquisition on Friday, Fitbit claimed user data would not be sold or used for Google advertising. Quote, consumer trust is paramount to Fitbit. Strong privacy and security guidelines have been part of Fitbit's DNA since day one, and this will not change, unquote. Still, dozens of Fitbit wearers complained on social media over the weekend about the Google takeover. I tossed my Fitbit into the trash today, one user tweeted. I intend to sell my Fitbit and delete my account, said another. Google already keeps a trove of information on people, including location data, search history, and YouTube viewing history. The company also creates advertisement profiles of users based on information such as location, gender, age, hobbies, careers, interests, relationship status, possible weight, and income. Veronica Olson, a researcher fellow at CERN in Geneva, said she immediately requested her data be deleted upon hearing the news of the merger. Quote, I am usually careful about big tech companies gobbling up too much data, but especially Google, she said. I have a knee-jerk reaction to Google having any of my data. I try to opt out of most of the stuff that they do, unquote. Because Olson is based in Europe, Fitbit is required to delete her data if she requests it under the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which went into effect in 2018. Under GDPR, users are also entitled to copies of their own data. But users in any location, even outside the EU, can delete their accounts by the Fitbit website. The company said it would then permanently delete data associated with the account after a seven-day grace period. Okay, so if you're a Fitbit user and uh, you're worried of what Google might do with this data, you know, you know, it's a shame because, you know, people come to really rely on these things to, to track their exercise and use it as a motivational factor. And, you know, it'd be hard to give up. I mean, there are other systems, but you kind of tend to get to like the one you have and, and, uh, you know, when something like this happens, when you when it gets bought out by a big company like Google that is known to <laughs> to track all sorts of data uh, and create these profiles on you, it, it is kind of scary. I had one a long time ago. I don't use it anymore. But, uh, you know, I'll probably go and ask Fitbit to delete my data. If they, I'm sure they still have it. I'm not sure what I'm not sure what else I really tell you to do. But it's just something that you have to be aware of and decide whether or not you want to keep going with this or not. Hopefully, you know, hopefully... They will keep that data private, but, you know, you never know. Google says they're not going to do it now, but those in the Fitbit people say they're, that they're not going to do it. But, you know, over time, that has a habit of changing. So I've seen other acquisitions in the past, like WhatsApp, uh, go the same route where, you know, Facebook promised the WhatsApp 
people that, you know, they would not use that information for marketing. And slowly but surely over the years, they changed their position on that uh, to the point where Brian Acton finally left Facebook. Uh, we interviewed him a while back. Uh, he's now funding Signal. So anyway, uh, you just have to be aware that even with what they say now, maybe, you know, maybe they're not going to use it now. Uh, you got to keep an eye on the privacy policies and see if they're ever going to change that. And it might be a lot easier to delete your Fitbit data and account now than uh, after the acquisition is complete. So again, speaking of privacy, I just want to give a quick uh, note. Apple has uh, revamped their privacy page and it's, um, it's really good. It, it you know, I'd, would recommend, especially if, well, if you're thinking about being an Apple customer or you're already an Apple customer, it gives a really nice, clean overview of the links that they go to protect your privacy. So I would check it out. Just go to apple.com slash privacy and you'll see it there. Uh, it's worth a read. Uh, and it's really, and again, it's well done, unlike a lot of other privacy pages. It's obvious that Apple is really starting to push this as a, uh, a differentiating factor between itself and, you know, and Microsoft and Google in particular. And, you know, more power to them. I, I'm an Apple fan. I hope they keep doing it. I hope they, I hope they even go go even further. All right. Next up, Microsoft has announced that the Office uh, 365, which you know, unfortunately, all software seems to be going to the subscription model. You can't just buy it once and be done anymore. I just got bit by this too. I would, I, I've used Office, but I usually get it. I get it through my work, but I get a really hefty discount through the Microsoft um, Home Use Program. With the, you know, they. They do this for a lot of people that work at big companies who also have big contracts with Microsoft for, you know, Microsoft Office products like Word and Excel and PowerPoint. But, you know, now they've gone to the subscription model where I have to pay every year to keep using these products, which drives me nuts personally, but there's not much more way around it. Anyway, it sounds like they're Pro Plus users, which I believe is strictly for enterprise currently, are going to get some really cool protections for against malware and uh, basically corrupted Word documents or Excel documents, because those are very, very common ways for distributing malware. So um, while this doesn't come to the home user yet, I'm hoping it will soon. So let me read a little bit from this article from Bleeping Computer. Microsoft Office 365 Pro Plus users are getting a new feature called Microsoft Office Application Guard. With this feature, an Office document, such as a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet, can be opened in a virtualized container that is protected with hardware-level security and restricted from accessing the normal Windows operating environment. While users will be able to print, edit, and save changes, this sandboxed environment will prevent malicious macros from installing malware, exploiting vulnerabilities, or executing PowerShell or JavaScript commands that can affect your normal Windows environment. I'll explain that in a minute. If a user decides to trust a document, before being allowed to use the document, it will be scanned first using the Microsoft Defender Advanced Threat Protection Threat Cloud for extra protection. As spam emails containing malicious Word and Excel documents are one of the most common vectors for installing malware, such as ransomware, data stealing and keylogging trojans, remote access trojans, and malware downloaders, this protection is a very useful feature for any user. This feature is currently in limited preview and will become generally available in the summer of 2020. All right, so that it, there were some technical terms thrown out there, but you know, PowerShell, JavaScript, uh, these kind of things that we're talking about, these are all just kind of aspects of Windows that a lot of people don't know about that are often exploited by malware. Because they're powerful and open, uh, it gives you know malware all these various methods by which to get all up in your system. So anyway, this is a very welcome development. I, uh, this is going to be the kind of thing that we're going to have to start doing going forward. It's just, there's no way around it. We're going to have to sandbox our applications 
and these documents, you know, especially ones that we receive from uh, the internet or through email, they, you know, they need to be treated, they're basically quarantined, right? They need to be treated as hostile until proven otherwise. And, you know, you can do a lot with these documents in, in, in a container that, you you know, you, you all you really need in most cases is just to read it uh, or maybe make a copy of it and, and make some changes to it. And it sounds like this is basically going to allow you to do that in this special, you know, what we call a sandbox or a container where anything that is inside that container can't get outside that container. And what happens in a lot of these documents, because Microsoft Word has these built-in macro systems and other, you know, Visual Basic and all these other kind of crazy programming interfaces that are built into these documents, uh, bad guys use those things to, you know, use what seems to be an innocuous document or, or spreadsheet to actually infect your computer with malware. So this is a welcome change, and we're going to see more of this going in the future. We just have to. Uh, along with basic whitelisting, uh, like Microsoft has got the restricted folder access uh, in Windows as well now. It basically says anything that's in certain folders, like your documents folder, can only be accessed, um, you know, opened, edited, changed by approved software only, uh, a whitelist. So only these certain applications can modify it. And you can change it yourself, and it's kind of annoying until you get to the point where you've modified it for all the applications you care about. But the point being that it prevents malware like ransomware from just going in and just encrypting all your files because it won't have permission. It's not on the whitelist. So anyway, this is an interesting development and just a sign of things to come. And uh, hopefully they will push this out to even the regular consumer versions of Office because it's, it's honestly, it's needed. All right, this is a really interesting article and it, it's, it's another one of those cases where you really have to read it carefully because it's, it you know the headline itself makes it seem like the world is ending, the sky is falling, your hair is on fire. Uh, but when you really dig into it, it's 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 not it's not as bad as it sounds. But it's still very interesting. So uh, Ars Technica wrote this up, and uh, let me just read uh, some short excerpts from from their article. Siri, Alexa, and Google Assistant are vulnerable to attacks that use lasers to inject inaudible and sometimes invisible commands into the devices and surreptitiously cause them to unlock doors, visit websites, and locate, unlock, and start vehicles, researchers report in a research paper published on Monday. Dubbed light commands, the attack works against Facebook portal and a variety of phones. Shining a low-powered laser into these voice-activated systems allows attackers to inject commands of their choice from as far away as 360 feet. Because voice-controlled systems often don't require users to authenticate themselves, the attack can frequently be carried out without the need of a password or a PIN. Even when the systems require authentication for certain actions, it may be feasible to brute force the PIN since many devices don't limit the number of guesses a user can make. Among other things, light-based commands can be sent from one building to another and penetrate glass when our vulnerable device is kept near a closed window. The attack exploits a vulnerability in microphones that use microelectromechanical systems, or MEMS. The microscopic MEMS components on these microphones unintentionally respond to light as if it were sound. The laser-based attacks have several limitations, and this is the key part of the article. For one, the attacker must have direct line of sight to the targeted device. And for another, the light in many cases must be precisely aimed at a very specific part of the microphone. Except in cases where an attacker uses an infrared laser, the lights are also easy to see by someone who is close by and has line of sight of the device. What's more, devices typically respond with voice and visual cues when executing command, a feature that would alert users within earshot of the device. Okay, so that last paragraph is the key part of the whole thing. So, you know, early on they talk about, uh, you know, how you can... 
you know, these guys can hack your devices to start your car or locate your vehicle or, you know, unlock doors. Of course, that only works if you've set up these devices to do those things for you, which you can do, but it's not like, it's not like they could just do it to anybody. And, you know, and so again, it, the whole point of this is it's a very specific, interesting way that they have found to basically transmit voice commands over light. Uh, because for some reason, they haven't figured out exactly why this works yet. These, you know, MEMS microphones, it's a really interesting technology, respond to light similarly to they respond to sound. So they shine a light and they, you know, so somehow they've got to be able to shine a laser on precisely straight on to one of these microphones uh, on your device. You know, the chances that someone is going to be able to, you know, see that through a pane of glass and have line of sight directly to that part of your device is very, very slim. Um, and unless they managed to use infrared lasers, you would see this, <laughs> you would see the laser dot on your device anyway, you know, and like the article said, you know, once they tell to do something, you know, these things actually respond, right? Okay. I'll do what, you know, you know, I'll do what you said or whatever. Uh, so, you know, this is in practice really hard to do, but I just thought it was interesting as far as the technology goes. And again, just another example of how you really got to be careful, you know, just reading headlines on these things. Cause if you just read the headline, you think, oh my gosh, game over, you know, somebody can hack my device from outside my house without me knowing it. All right. So that brings us to the final topic for the day. And it's a little bit of a lengthy one. So we talked about browser fingerprinting not that long ago when we had Bill Buddington from the EFF on. He's the guy from uh, EFF, uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that creates their really cool tool called Panopticlick. Uh, and the idea behind Panopticlick is, well, let's start with fingerprinting. The idea behind fingerprinting is it's another way to track you around the web. And it's not like we don't have many, many ways to do this already, but because people are blocking a lot of those tracking technologies, they're looking for new ways to do it. And what they're really trying to do with fingerprinting is kind of like it sounds as you surf to a website, your browser trying to be helpful, coughs up a lot of information to that website you go to, uh, to help that website return to you the best possible looking web page. So that may include things like, you know, what fonts you have installed in your system, what kind of browser you have, what operating system you're running, how big your monitor is, whether you're a mobile device or not, you know, because obviously web pages you know, designed for a smartphone, uh, well, look a lot different than a website, website designed for a full-fledged uh, computer browser screen. But your browser also gives access to a lot of other really weird things. Sometimes it gives access to your location. Usually, of course, that takes a pop-up where you have to agree. Uh, it gives access to weird things on, on your phone, like even access to your accelerometer. Sometimes, you know, other sensors in your, in your, in your smartphone, uh, microphone, camera. Again, most of the browsers today, at least enforce some sort of a, a check where it has to ask if you want that permission, but some of these sites you're going to, you, you want to give them permission. Let's say you're going to zoom, uh, and you're going to do a video conference. Well, to do that, you have to give it access to your microphone and your camera, right? And in some cases, location. So anyway, let me read a little bit from this article from the Washington Post. Now, there's this guy named Jeffrey Fowler, who I'd love to get on the show. He's been doing a lot of really great privacy-oriented articles for the Washington Post, and this one is no exception. Definitely go check out uh, Jeffrey Fowler. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, Fowler, at the Washington Post. And look at some of his recent stuff, and you'll find this article. It's really long, uh, but it's really a good read. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts from it here. This will give you a better idea of what's going on. He does a really good job of explaining this in layman's terms. 
Just when you thought we had hit rock bottom on all the ways the internet could snoop on us, no, we've sunk even lower. There's a tactic spreading around the web named after treatment usually reserved for criminals, fingerprinting. At least a third of the 500 sites Americans visit most often use hidden code to run an identity check on your computer or phone. Websites from CNN and Best Buy to porn site X-Videos and WebMD are dusting your digital fingerprints by collecting details about your device you can't easily hide. It doesn't matter whether you turn on private browsing mode, clear tracker cookies, or use a virtual private network. Some even use the fact that you've flagged Do Not Track in your browser as a way to fingerprint you. They're doing it, I suspect, because more of us are taking steps to protect our data. Privacy is an arms race, and we are falling behind. Fingerprinting happens when sites force your browser to hand over innocent-looking but largely unchanging technical information about your computer, such as the resolution of your screen, your operating system, or the fonts you have installed. Combined, these details create a picture of your device as unique as the skin on your thumb. Sites can use your digital fingerprint to know you visited before, create profiles of your behavior, or make ads follow you around. They can also use it to stop you from sharing a password, identify fraudsters, and block harmful bots. Fingerprinting has been around for more than a decade, but considered mostly a theoretical threat for you and me. Not anymore. I asked Patrick Jackson, Chief Technology Officer of privacy software company Disconnect, to test for signs of fingerprinting on the 500 most popular websites websites used by Americans. Fingerprinting isn't as widespread as cookies, those tiny files websites drop in your browser to track you, but it's concerning because it's much, much more aggressive. Quote, fingerprinting is designed to be user hostile, said Jackson. It even takes the fact that you don't want to be tracked as a parameter to make your fingerprinting more unique, unquote. Why are some of the most well-known websites doing this? And what can we do to stop it? It's another tale of tech industry putting its own concerns ahead of your privacy. Fingerprinting sites don't necessarily know you by name, but they're connecting the dots on the information that could be just as valuable. When you load a site, fingerprinting code starts asking your computer for things that aren't part of the usual process of drawing a page. Knowing what operating system you're running, what fonts you have installed, or what address is on your internal network makes you look different from other people visiting the site. Some sites use as a signal whether people have turned on the do not track flag in their browser. That's not ironic, it's malicious. Many times, fingerprinting code will run the digital equivalent of a sonar test, sending out a signal just to see what comes back. Website code instructs your browser how to draw out text. The coding in it for fingerprinting can include words or icons that never show up on your screen, letting websites track minute differences in how each device responds. The Best Buy website uses this invisible ink to write, listen carefully, F1N63R comma PR1N71N6 exclamation mark, unquote. Stand back and you might see that it spells out fingerprinting. Of course, that's kind of leet speak, as we, as we say. That's where they kind of exchange um, letters for numbers that look similar. So anyway, so it, that's ironic. So basically what they're, what they're saying is that the way Best Buy, Best Buy tries to track you is it tells your browser to secretly write the word fingerprinting off in the distance somewhere, and then it very carefully looks at how your browser rendered that text. Like, you know, if you've ever zoomed in on text and you can see all the little blocks that make up each letter and how some of them are a little gray at the edges and some are black in the middle. Anyway, if it goes through and reads every one of those pixels and, and gets the exact gray value of every one of those pixels for that entire word, your browser is going to do it a little differently than someone else's browser. And that uniqueness is what sets you apart. 
All right, back to the article. Just one other part I want to read uh, later in the article. It says, Apple iPhones, iPads, and Macs running the company's Safari browser are among the hardest to fingerprint. That is, in part, because Apple has relatively limited product line, and those devices tend to be standardized. So they look more similar to fingerprinting software compared to the zillions of variations in Android phones and Windows laptops out there. It's a kind of online herd immunity. Okay, so that's the last part of the article. Actually, I've read other things that take uh, exception to that, but the idea being you want to be as bland and as possible. You do not want to stick out in the crowd. You want to look like somebody else. You want to be unrecognizable. That's, that's how you avoid fingerprinting. But it's really, really hard to do because they look at so many different things. Uh, and when you put all those together, it's really hard to, to, to be unique or to not be unique. So he listed some of these websites, um, the, the top 30 sites that of those top 500 that are tracking you. I just want to run through this real quick. So AccuWeather.com, Adobe.com, ADP.com. I think that's ADP, I think the, the, the site that handles most of our paychecks. Airbnb, All Recipes, Best Buy, Cengage. I'm not sure what, I think it's a college site. Chase, CNN, Costco, eBay, Fox News, Hotels.com, IMDB, IRS.gov, LiveJasmine.com, I don't know what that is, Marriott, Norton, that's the antivirus company, New York Times, Reddit, State.gov, that's the State Department, Thesaurus.com, USCIS.gov, that's the Immigration Service, WashingtonPost.com, which ironically is the paper this guy's writing for, Weather.gov, that's the Weather Service, WebMD, Wells Fargo, Xfinity, Xvideos, which is a porn site, and Yahoo. Now, uh, of those, uh, he reached out to a lot of these websites to say, hey, why are you doing this? Some of them basically came back and said, oh, we didn't know we were doing that. And it's actually feasible that they that they couldn't because a lot of times they hire other companies to do their stuff. And as I've mentioned on this, on this show before, you know, when you're building websites, just like when you're building software, a lot of people don't want to reinvent the wheel. So there are certain things, uh, funny, you know, there are fancy things that you do on a website like a shopping cart or those little collapsible you know, uh, navigation panes on the left where you hit the triangle and it opens up more and that kind of, all those little widgets on the, on the page are, are all written by somebody and the, no one rewrites them usually. So sometimes when you, when you get these free or even for pay, you know, web, web kits embedded in those things uh, is some of this technology and you might not know it was there. Uh, other ones said that, you know, they would stop doing it. You know, they realized, ah, oh, you know, we don't really need it. We don't want to have any bad press. So thanks for letting us know. We'll, we'll remove that. Other ones just, you know, some, some of them are doing it for anti-fraud. Uh, they're doing it for what they believe are, are good purposes. Uh, some of them, like I'm guessing the Washington Post and New York Times, if you've ever been to those websites, are really sticklers about how many free articles you can read per month uh, before you, they want you to start paying for their service. You know, that's understandable. Uh, and, you know, sometimes if they, if you block cookies and things like that, the only way they can remember that you've been to that site before probably is to fingerprint you. Anyway, so these are some of the sites that after contacted said that they were going to stop doing it. Uh, AccuWeather, IRS, all the government sites, state.gov, uscs.gov, weather.gov, and Xfinity, xfinity.com. I'll believe that when I see it. <laughs> so, okay. So what can you do? How can you somehow not stick out in the crowd? How can you be more bland? How can you not be recognized? It's really, really hard. Uh, there are so many ways that, that they can, you know, so many different things that they can look at on your computer, all without your knowledge or um, consent, exploiting these web technologies that are trying to be helpful and trying to, you know, make your experience on the web better, exploiting those things to, 
find something unique or actually a whole bunch of things about you that when taken together as a whole, make you look unique. I mean, even crazy things like some of the, some of the websites actually expose uh, APIs or programming interfaces that, you know, will allow a website to find out what your battery level is uh, on your laptop. I mean, just crazy stuff like this. I don't know why they make this available. So anyway, and the other problem is it changes all the time. Not only does the technology change, giving access to more possible ways, um, you know, things to add to this list of things to check to find out if you're uh, unique or not. Uh, But, you know, they keep coming up with new ways to do it. So it's really hard to fight this stuff. Now, browser makers are trying. Um, Firefox included. Safari is another one. Uh, They are trying to take some steps here. Even Google, in their own way, is, um, is trying to do this stuff. They've come up with some interesting ideas. Uh, Google, for instance, I think I talked about this recently, is coming up with some ideas like um, an information budget. Like, you know, so if you go to a website, that website can ask you some of these things about your browser, but not all of these things, uh, which basically limits. Let's say there's 100 things uh, that your browser could give to that website. uh, You know, that's, you know, your fonts, your screen size, your color depth, uh, what OS version you're running, what browser version you're running, what browser type you're running, all these, you know, all these various things. And there's way more than that. You know, instead of saying, letting that website get access to all those things, it basically has a budget and says, okay, you can ask me for five of those 100 things, choose wisely, which severely limits what they can do in terms of, you know, the the, the set of things that they're looking at to try to determine if you're unique. I think that's an interesting idea, you know, because you, you got to figure that any given website might, might really only need a few of those things to, to do its job properly. Um, and I guess, I guess what the way they're working is if they ask for more than that, then it will pop up something saying, Hey, this website wants to find out this, this, and this, is that okay? Uh, so that gives you the choice. So I think that's an interesting idea. Safari is also, you know, trying to limit what info is shared and trying to block some basic, um, uh, fingerprinting techniques. I think I read that Safari is doing things like, you know, when it asks for what, you know, version number you are, instead of saying, you know, 13.1.3, it just says 13. Uh, you know, so it kind of dumbs down uh, or rounds off some of this data to make it, you know, less unique. Mozilla is also trying to incorporate more stuff. They, of course, they make the Firefox browser. Um, they're trying to incorporate some more anti-fingerprinting tools. Apparently, they've got some more on the way. Um, they, of course, may also make the Tor browser, which is a highly anonymous browser. But even the, even the Tor browser, I've tried this, even the Tor browser over a VPN uh, can be fingerprinted sometimes. So it's it's hard. You know, I think, you know, in the future, I definitely think that browsers need to be adding more of these kind of things like that info budget's a great idea. I also think they should just lie. You know, there's there's some of these parameters that it gives out are, that are really not that important. You know, so I think, you know, it would be kind of cool if you could set a setting in your browser to randomly change some of these values in ways that don't really matter. You know, so I'm running 13.1.2. No, I'm running 13.4.3. Or uh, today, uh, you know, I'm on Mac OS. Tomorrow, I'm on Windows. Um, and just kind of, you know, randomly rotate these things. And, and the, the key there would be to choose values that are extremely common so that you don't stand out. Anyway, these are things that I think are coming and we'll see. Now, as part of this article and some other ones, in fact, there's another one. I'll put all these links on the show notes. But you could another really, really interesting technical version of this discussion is on their site, restoreprivacy.com. And if you go to restoreprivacy.com and search for browser fingerprinting, there's a really long and interesting article if you want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of the tech stuff uh, of what's going on and, and how you can do some pretty fancy things to try to block fingerprinting. Uh, I recommend you go there. 
Um, but you know, what can you do just at a high level? Of course, you know, I would use Firefox. Um, I would definitely use uBlock Origin and Privacy Badger as plugins to help, you know, block tracking and block cookies. Um, try to be as bland as possible, which means, you know, don't tweak anything beyond the normal that you don't have to. Don't install a bunch of weird plugins. Don't, you know, install a bunch of weird fonts. If you've got a really big screen, you know, try to resist the urge to always, you know, go full screen with your browser. Um, you know, just keep it at the default size, which will be much more generic that, you know, those kind of things. Now, if you recall, uh, I talked with the owner of Winston Privacy uh, over the summer and uh, they came out with their Winston Privacy box and they're slowly but surely shipping out their stuff to the to their supporters. And I'm on the list uh, and they're kind of running behind. So I'm really interested to see once I get that box, you know, what that does for fingerprinting. Uh, but in the meantime, if you just want to kind of be, be dejected and, and get an idea how bad things really are, there's a whole list of sites I'm going to run off here quick that you can check out that are very interesting, that each do their kind of own method of fingerprinting uh, and ways to kind of show you whether or not you're unique. And again, you don't want to be unique. You 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 want to be uh, look like somebody else. So anyway, Panopticlick, we've already talked about. That's Panopticlick. Uh, dot org, And if you just go to EFF and search on Panopticlick, you'll find it. Uh, P-A-N-O-P-T-I-C-L-I-C-K, Panopticlick. Uh, another one that's very interesting, it's called amiunique.org, just like it sounds. Uh, I'll, I'll just all put together, no uh, dashes, no dots, amiunique.org. Uh, another one called deviceinfo.me.me shows you a whole lot of information. It's more, it's kind of like Panopticlick in, in that it shows you all the things that it can tell about you. Uh, another very interesting one called fingerprintjs.com. That's fingerprint JavaScript, basically. Fingerprintjs.com. Go to that site and uh, run the demo. It, it will give you your unique ID, and you can, you can tell whether or not um, how unique that ID is. And then another one called nothingprivate.ml. Uh, is another very interesting. Uh, it goes there. It's kind of weird the way it does it. It says, hey, give me... Well, first of all, if you go there and it says, here's your name, you're in good shape because what that really means is somebody else tried this a long time ago, gave it a name, and you look just like them, which is great, which means you don't look unique. But what they have you do is you go there and you fill in a name. could be anything. And then you and then you try to fool it. You turn on a VPN. You try to put on private mode and all these different things, and it keeps telling you, nope, you're still Carrie. Yep. I recognize you. You're still carry. And what that means is basically it's what it's doing. It's got a funny way. It's just giving a name to your fingerprint. So if you go in there and says, hi, Bob, that's great. Cause that's not me, right? It's somebody else. It thinks you're somebody else, but don't be surprised if it doesn't do that. <laughs> so anyway, they're all just kind of interesting ways of looking at the same data. And of course they're not perfect. I mean, for one thing, you know, how many people know about these sites, right? So, you know, it's not like, you know, all 2 billion or whatever internet users on the planet have gone there. And so it can evaluate you against every other internet user. It's probably only tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of people that happen to know about this site that have gone there. A lot of them being security researchers and journalists and other things too. So, you know, it's a weird subset of the internet that you're comparing yourself against. And of course, every one of these things is limited to some techniques. There are always new techniques and they're probably not doing all of them. And none of these things are probably actually using the really fancy proprietary technologies that all these tracking companies are using. They're just, you know, they're trying to simulate or emulate these things as best they can, you know, so anyway, my tip of the week, unfortunately, is, is not as concrete and as straightforward and simple and trustworthy as I would like it to be, because this is a really, really daunting problem. 
something we really have to figure out how to fix because it's the way things are going because we've found all these other great ways to block other tracking and this is now what they're going to and it's really hard to stop. So uh, if nothing else, I wanted to raise your awareness and give you some you know, more information and things to read about and some tools to help you kind of check and see where things are at. And uh, hopefully what you'll find in the future is that you can foil these things and not be unique. But for now, you should basically assume that if a site really wants to recognize that you are the same person that was there before, now they might not know your name, of course, but if they, you know, they might be able to recognize that it's you that keeps coming back and save information on you, whoever you is. And then, you know, if they happen to work in concert with other sites that do know your name, then they can figure out who you are. So that that's really where the danger comes is with the, you know these different sites use the same same technology as a backend service and then that backend service can now recognize you on various websites and if any one of those websites actually knows who you are name and address and all that kind of stuff, bam it's got you. Ugh. So sorry <laughs> sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but again awareness and transparency are the first steps to fixing any problem. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening in uh, to, the, to our new show this week. We've got uh, another great interview for you starting next week. It's gonna, it's a long one. It's definitely going to be a two-parter. I uh, talked with a gentleman named Chris Schaffer uh, who wrote a book called Data versus Democracy that I highly recommend. Uh, we'll be talking about that. I, uh, they, I found him because he's on the same um, publisher that I am on A-Press. I was kind of looking through some of A-Press's other books in my realm of privacy and ran across this book and uh, really thought it looked good. I reached out through a press to find the author. He sent me a copy of the book and it was really, really well done. So that's a very interesting information. So, um, we're going to be talking with Chris Schaffer, uh, for two interviews in a row, two, two shows in a row starting next week. Also, you might, this would be a great time to sign up for my, for my newsletter, or at least make a point of going back to my blog every so often. I, I'm going to be updating my best and worst gift list idea. Uh, in terms of security and privacy, that's always fun. So I'll be updating that for the for the upcoming holiday season. Be be sure to check that out. And as always, you know, check out the book. Uh, leave a if you already have the book, you know, maybe leave a nice review on Amazon. I would appreciate that. Same for the podcast as well. Uh, subscribe now so you make sure you don't miss anything. And while you're there, you know, maybe leave a nice review on that as well. I very much appreciate that. The other thing that you could do, of course, that I would, uh, is tell friends, tell friends and family, spread the word. It's, you know, it's hard to get noticed on this thing. So word of mouth is a great way to do it. So, you know, post this on your social media, uh, all that kind of stuff and get the word out. I would very much appreciate that. All right. And that'll do it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe out there, everybody. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>